the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. And as is usual, we begin our new season, season eight, with a discussion of a film. This episode, we are doing Hands on a Hard Body, which is not a porno film, despite what you might think. <laughs> well, it's a little porny. Before we get to that, let's get our drinks and rants or raves. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I am just going to have a frozen margarita, and today I am ranting about infrastructure. Given the record heats from this summer and the terrible storms that seem to be blowing through every other day, I'm pretty sure that at least here in Memphis, if somebody wanted to get elected mayor, they could do so on one single platform, which is bury the lines. <laughs> because <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times over the summer, large swaths, I'm talking about like 70, 80% of Memphis was completely out of power for days. This is not getting any better. There's no hope in sight for this getting better. And we've got to figure out something to do with our power grid. Bury them lines. Yeah. So, Rick, what do you have and what are you ranting or raving about? Today I'm having, I think I've mentioned this brewery in the past. It's a local brewery named Haymarket. For those of you in the know, Haymarket has a particular place in the history of labor, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. And Haymarket is now brewing this new beer they call Chicago Tavern Beer. It's what old style wishes it were. <laughs> so I'm having a Chicago Tavern Beer. And this week, I am raving about Norman Lear. So I have this tendency to rave about people only after they die. But a few weeks ago, Norman Lear turned 101, and he's still alive. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, he really did change American television primarily through his sitcom All in the Family. He was an incredibly creative producer and today what they would call showrunner. So I'm raving about Norman Lear. Jason, what about you? I'm going to have a Geary's Pale Ale in honor of David Geary, who just passed away recently, who's kind of a big figure in the brewing scene in Maine. I have some friends who are brewers. And I'm going to rant about scabs, or more specifically, about crossing the picket lines. <laughs> News just came out that APSA, Political Science Association, who's holding their conference in September at a hotel where the workers are striking, has just announced that they're going to continue to have their conference there despite what people Ooh. have said. Mm. And what's worse about this is the language they use in their statement. They said that they were doing this to support disadvantaged people and people from outside of the U.S., that somehow holding the conference would help marginalized groups within their association, which is a bizarre claim to make. But you see this a lot in anti-strike stuff is, oh, it's because of diversity we're opposed to the strike or whatever, trying to mm -hmm. mobilize the language of social justice in order to really go against social justice, because solidarity is instrumental to social justice. Mm. So, Lee, we're talking about hands on a hard body, so what do you want to talk about? 
Hands on a Hard Body is my favorite documentary film of all time. And as you will no doubt hear in this episode, I am quite evangelical <laughs> about it. By the way, it's not just me. It's Quentin Tarantino's favorite documentary of all time as well. But basically, it tells the story of an annual competition. It was held from 1992 to 2005 in Longview, Texas, in which a local Nissan dealership selected 24 contestants by lottery for a chance to win a tantalizing symbol of freedom and mobility in many rural areas, namely a brand new hard body truck. All the contestants had to do to win it was to show up at 5 a.m. in the sweltering Texas heat, place a hand on the truck, and wait until theirs was the last hand left. Mm -hmm. Now, they got a five-minute break every hour and a 15-minute break every six hours, but the rest of the time, they couldn't lean, they couldn't sleep, they couldn't use the bathroom, and most importantly, they couldn't take their hand off the hard body. <laughs> they could only really just wrestle with the relentless passage of time and all of the boredom and the exhaustion and the physical pain and quite often delirium that it brought with it. So they put their hands on the truck and they waited and they waited and they waited, sometimes up to 80 hours before there was only one person left. And, you know, if you are not calculating this at home, that's more than three entire days and nights that they're standing up with their hands on this truck. Yet, as the clock ticked relentlessly on and we learn more about each contestant's hunger for a chance at prosperity... What initially seemed like an absurd spectacle of willpower and perseverance became a deeper exploration of the human condition, the limits of the mind and the body, amity and enmity, suffering and compassion, ambition and ability. As all these 24 contestants confront the bittersweet realities of the American dream in the hopes of escaping the suffocating shackles of their circumstances. So in the words of Benny Perkins, former winner of A Hard Body and return contestant in the documentary Hands on a Hard Body, and by the way, in my opinion, one of the most underrated philosophers of the 20th century, <laughs> it is a real human drama. When it gets down to the last two, that's when it gets really tough because he's got most of his friends and family there, most of your friends and family are there, and then you've got fans. And everybody's rooting for somebody, you know. And if you look over here, either the friends and family and, and fans of uh, this other person, you know, they're looking at you like, okay, you need to quit, you know. Well, if you're looking better than this other person, they're really upset with you. And you can see it. And it deals with you. It really works on you. And you say, hey, man, I don't deserve that, you know. And then you get to thinking about, well, hey, you know, all these people are up here, and don't they realize that we're suffering, that we're hurting? And, you know, you feel like they're kind of bloodthirsty in a way. And, I mean, they're there to see this spectacle, and it seems so absurd, very absurd. And you have to realize later, hey, you know, it's a human drama thing. And it's more than just a contest. And it's more than just winning a truck. Uh, I remember my dad had a truck. 
my uncle had a truck. All the men in my family had trucks. And, well, you can't do things with a car that you can do with a truck. You just grow up saying, well, eventually you're going to own a truck. Eventually you're going to need a truck, you know. And then you, once you get one, you have friends and families, and I need to move, or I need so-and-so, I need this, I need that. And you haul it for them. So, guys, I wanted to start with this question. What is a truck to a Texan? <laughs> you know, the documentary begins with this epigraph by Willa Cather, the end is nothing, the road is all. And that's clearly referencing what we're going to see in the rest of the Hands on a Hard Body documentary, namely that the most important part of the story is what happens in the course of the competition and not really who ultimately wins the truck. But the truck itself is an important symbol in this story. So what is a truck to a Texan? <laughs> the best line about what a truck is is a line given by one of the competitors, Ronald, who says... You can't make money with a car. You can make money with a truck. That a mm. truck is a means of transportation, but as he points out, you could pick up some work hauling things or moving things. A truck is a means of production, to use the Marxist terminology for it. And I think for some people, it seems to represent the ability to go from really worker to capitalists, to be clear about it, to go from someone who has to work for someone else to the ability, or at least the idea, that you could be working for yourself. You mm -hmm. could be your own boss, and a truck could represent that distinction. Although for some people, it seems like it's just a cool way to get around. Beats a Volkswagen bug. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because Benny says there are just some things you can't do with a car. We know that he's a farmer. For him, a pickup truck, it's a piece of equipment that he needs in order to be a farmer. And I think you're right, Jason, that shows that for the rest of the people who want it in order to make money, as you said, they see it as a road to being an entrepreneur. And so the truck is a symbol, or even maybe I would say an icon, of not just the freedom of mobility, but a certain opening to an economic freedom. Yeah, it's not just for the farmers. I mean, for Angie, who's one of the younger contestants in this, it's a way to get out of debt. She says, first thing I'm going to do is sell the truck. Right. Uh, mm. Another younger contestant, Raul, it's a way for him to stay in school. He said, you know, I was in school and working part time, but it wasn't going to make ends meet. So if I win this, then I can go back to school. Maybe it's worth pointing out and maybe everyone assumed this already, but every single one of these contestants in this contest are poor people. Longview, Texas is not a super wealthy town. All of the contestants are people for whom we're led to understand, and I believe a truck would completely change their lives, a brand new mm. truck. Can we talk for a second about just what this truck looks like? <laughs> I, I don't mean the weird handprint painted on it, which does seem like a negative, but I was shocked in watching this, how small the truck looked mm. compared to modern trucks today and how when they're doing the contest, some people bring like a tape player, some people bring paperback books. They're able to put this stuff on the hood of the truck and it's about waist high. Mm -hmm. Like it is so much smaller than what a truck looks like nowadays. It looks like a mini truck. And I remember reading somewhere about how trucks from the 90s, which is what this film was, pickups from the 90s, were still highly desirable amongst farmers and other people who used them for work because they were fixable, 
They had what you really wanted in a truck. They had a bed and not a cab. I mean, trucks today, they're basically minivans. You know, they have an extended cab and they're used by people who don't seem to have any need to haul or move anything. I mean, there's a weird tendency in American cars where, like, everything becomes the new minivan. <laughs> a while ago, like, SUVs were the minivan for people who didn't want to be seen in a minivan. But I feel like everyone caught on to that. And now trucks are the minivans for people who don't want to be seen in a minivan. But in order for that to work, you have to have the extended cab and you shorten the hauling ability. And it becomes something that's less useful and more of a status symbol. I think it's interesting to think about that in terms of this movie because it's a slice into what trucks look like, but also the truck is something people can use, but it's also something that shows who you are. One of the guys is like, there are a lot of people driving Volkswagen Bugs in my neighborhood. I want this truck. I don't want to be the guy driving the Volkswagen Bug, right? There, it's more about what the truck signifies than what the truck can do. Yeah, and I don't think I mentioned this at the top, but this film is from 1997. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it looks like a mid to late 90s hard body truck, which you're right, were significantly smaller. I probably also should have said at the top that it's totally okay to press pause now and go watch this documentary. Right. It's only about an hour and a half long. It'll help if you know the characters that we're talking about, although we're going to try to explain them as we go along. But It's yeah. also important to point out, as one of the guys does, and I don't remember who said this, but he points out that every Texan wears a hat and every Texan wants a pickup truck. Yeah. And so for some of them, it's a symbol of what it means to be Texan. You're not mm -hmm. a real Texan if you don't have a hat on and if you're not in a pickup truck. The other thing that was surprising to me is that this is about a Nissan truck. You know, maybe as a northerner, I have all of these stereotypes, but I would have thought that many of the people involved would have preferred that this be a Ford or a Chevy, some American-made truck, and not a Japanese import. And so I was a little surprised that this took place in a Nissan dealership and it was about a Nissan truck. Yeah, I think the make and model are not as important to the contestants as the freeness of it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Know? Like that they're winning an absolutely new free truck. Right, and many of them point out that the newness of it is really important to them. Yeah. Because some of them have trucks already, but, you know, driving around in a new truck is really, really important. Although I should point out that the winner gives it to his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not truck specifically, and not Texas specifically, but in the South more generally, Vehicles are really necessary. Yeah. I mean, all the cities in the South are very spread out and sprawling. It's not a walkable part of the country. So this is no small thing that they're winning a truck. And I guess like the reason I wanted to start with this truck is because one of the things that will become abundantly clear by, let's say, the 24th or 25th hour of the contest is how much suffering is involved in this context, yeah. how much physical suffering. And then as the second day passes and the third day passes, psychological suffering, this is a lot of suffering. And I'm sure all of them many times, maybe once every hour, ask themselves, for what? For what am I doing this? And so I do think it's important that we talk about how much suffering people will go through for a truck. Yeah. And a couple of them point out, as you said, Lee, as the hours wear on, so into the 25th hour, the 32nd hour, that they would give up. But all that keeps them going is the recognition that they're going to have a new truck at the end of this. Mm -hmm. And that'll make it worth it. Which then introduces an odd logic. 
because as one of the contestants points out, if I don't win, then this wouldn't have been worth it. But I can't give up now because I put in so many hours, so I got to keep going. It's a really bizarre logic all because... In the end, you get a new truck. Poor people are exploited through these instant prosperity, get rich quick schemes, even lotteries, yeah. right? Work mm-hmm. this way. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of tax. Okay, so we know Benny is a farmer, but other people seem to have jobs. And so are they taking their vacation time in order to yeah. engage in this contest, which is a tax on them already? So they're using their vacation time or sick days or mm-hmm. whatever just in order to try to win this new truck. What strikes me is that this is a contest that really is a contest of endurance and nothing else, right? There's no skill involved. There's, I mean, there's a little bit about like how well you plan your meals and footwear. But beyond <laughs> that, there's just the ability to stand for hours. I was wondering what everyone's job was and how much that pure physical endurance is a part of a lot of modern jobs. Mm. Everything from waiting on tables to industrial jobs, a lot of it is your ability just to stand for hours. Mm. And the way in which the contest draws on a particular image of what work is and what work means, that work is an ability to endure something. Yeah. To some people in the contest, what they're doing doesn't seem that dissimilar to what they're called upon to do in their wage work. Mm. It's their ability to show how much they can put up with. Only now... That's tied to a real prize, right? Not just you get another paycheck, you spend on your rent, you get another week. But if you can endure the most, you get a truck. Yeah, and it's not just physical endurance. It's also psychological endurance. I mean, part of what they have to endure is the boredom. And a lot of us... Well, not us, but a lot of people have jobs where getting through the day is just about enduring the boredom or the annoyingness of other people or whatever ticky-tack rules people have put in place that you have to waste your mental energy paying attention to. I ultimately think that it was the people who could psychologically endure the contest that came out better than the people who could physically endure the contest. I think by the end, it's clear that the psychological side of this, I don't want to say trumps the physical side, but people would almost literally lose their minds. Yeah. And part of the problem with that is that then you're not paying attention to the contest rules and you could Mm -hmm. do something really silly And all of a sudden you're out Mm -hmm. just because your mind isn't on the task at hand constantly, which I think also duplicates some of the work that a lot of people experience, namely that this shit could get dangerous if, you know, your mind wanders. Yeah. You know, you could get your hand caught in a machine or all sorts of things. And so it really does, in the end, become this endurance of boredom. But also, the problem with boredom is that you need to keep your mind focused in the face of this extreme boredom. Yeah, I was surprised in watching it that as far as we see, and we don't see the way everyone gets out, we don't see anyone physically collapse. Yeah. We see people lose focus or just decide they can't do it anymore. I would thought that we'd at least see one person 
doze off and fall onto the truck or do something physically to get disqualified. We don't see that. It may have happened. You know, it's a documentary, so there is editing and there is selection, but we don't see that. Yeah, although we do see a few people drop out just short of physically collapsing. Yeah. I mean, the kind of protagonist of the story is this guy, Benny, who, as I said at the top of the episode, had won the contest two years before and returned to compete again. And at some point in the 70s hours, like, you know, 71st, 72nd hour or something, he realizes that he's just completely lost feeling in one of his legs and one of his feet. I don't think that he physically would have been able to stand for another hour and he takes himself out. Yeah, but we do see a number of emotional and psychological collapses. Oh, yeah, definitely. Which was really hard. One of the contestants, Kelly who I thought was really going to win because as Benny, who won it previously, he's looking at her and he's like, she's got game because she's <laughs> eating the right things. She's doing the right things at breaks. These other people are eating hamburgers and fat takes energy to burn <laughs> and they're going to get sleepy. And she really just loses because she breaks down emotionally and mentally. Yeah. And there's a moment in which I got quite scared because she she just kind of wanders off. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that she knows where she's going or even what's going on. As the documentary cuts that footage, it seems like the contest just lets her wander away. Yeah. But yeah. she just mentally could not take it anymore. Yeah, I don't think that there's much true monitoring of the safety of the contestants. I mean, I think they take their blood pressure right. every few hours, but that's really about it. This is a brutal contest. They put them through excruciating physical pain and psychological pain. We know that most of these people are in a financial situation where they will take really whatever the contest wants to give them for as long as they can. It's also the case that these contestants are characters. I mean, they're great characters, yeah. but they are characters that fill a lot of the kind of stereotypes of poor Southerners. I mean, yeah, some of them don't have teeth. Many of them are obviously uneducated or undereducated. They talk in these folk wisdom ways that excuse their own suffering without kind of realizing why it is that they're in the situation that they're in. And this is the one thing that I feel bad about, about loving this film so much, is that it does sometimes look a little bit like what gets called poverty porn. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about yeah. that? So these films that are made, we just kind of gawk at the suffering of poor people, you know, and we all learn a lesson from it, but overlook the fact that poor people suffered. How far are we from a kind of Hunger Games scenario? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how far are we in terms of turning the spectacle of not just suffering, but people's willingness to fight to the death or so on for entertainment? I should mention as an aside... I'd never seen a documentary before, but the first time I'd ever heard the radio show This American Life, it was the episode about this. Oh, really? <laughs> it may not have been the only story. They may have had a few more. And I remember thinking then, and maybe it's context because it's, you know, NPR and NPR has a certain audience that I felt like 
it really seemed like poverty porn. It really seemed like I was listening mm. to something that was, you know, here are the plebes willing to do this to themselves for your entertainment. Yeah. Enjoy. And even those moments of what Lee, you called folk wisdom, there could be a poverty porn aspect to that as well. Like, look, you don't have to be rich in order to be wise and happy. Look, here are these poor people who are wise and happy, which can obviously also be an excuse. Therefore, we don't have to do anything about the conditions of their lives because, look, they're wise and they're happy and everything's great. So that kind of worried me as well. And again, as a Northerner, I started worrying, is this also implicitly playing on Northern stereotypes of Southerners? Mm. And I don't know the background of the filmmaker at all. And so I don't know if he's a Southerner or not. But I did worry, you know, both about the poverty porn aspect of this and whether my stereotypes as a Northerner of Southerners were also playing into that. That might be true. I don't know about the filmmaker's background either. But I mean, this is a documentary. This isn't a narrative film. And so he's not manufacturing stereotypes. He's pointing the camera and showing us what he sees. I mean, I'll admit there were a lot of laugh out loud moments in this film. And when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, how could I have laughed at Mm. that? Because some of them were people who had just reached their physical or psychological limits. And the way that they manifest that was just funny to watch. But then there were other things that are more along this archetype of the Southerner. And I don't feel bad about laughing about this, but one of my favorite funny moments in this film is when one of the contestants, whose name is Norma, who is very religious, and she has all of these people outside of the contest that are cheering her on and praying for her and singing songs. And she's listening to religious music the whole time. And she actually goes quite deep into the contest. And she was the runner up, as a matter of fact. But at one point, they interview one of her church members who just happens to be watching that day. And the church member says, you know, last night, I just got woken up kind of in the middle of the night, and I didn't know why. But then I thought of Norma, and I started praying for her. And then I got here today, and her husband told me that at the same time last night, In the contest, Norma got a movement of the Holy Ghost or something. I don't know. The joy of the Lord. Yeah, the joy of the Lord. And the woman says, I mean, I'm not taking credit. I mean, I know there are other people praying for her. And I just thought, that is hilarious. And that is something that I could definitely see happening with people I know. But yeah, it does still play into a stereotype. But also what's sad about that is it's that very evangelical practice that actually causes Norma to lose the contest because they start praying and singing and her church members start clapping. And without thinking, she starts clapping. Yeah, and takes her hand off the truck. And takes her hand off the truck. And loses the Holy Ghost. Yes. Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. 
And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Recently, Hands on Hard Body was made into a Broadway musical that just makes me want to gag. <laughs> and I haven't seen it. Maybe it's a good musical. I don't know. But when I watched the documentary, I thought this very well could have been a great American novel. I mean, Hemingway or Fitzgerald or Steinbeck or even Toni Morrison could have written this story and it would have been amazing. The filmmaking, however, is pretty unsophisticated as it goes for documentary films. I think it's really the subject matter that makes this so compelling. And as we mentioned earlier, Benny, again, former winner of the contest, who kind of acts like the narrator throughout the documentary film, he says several times, this is a real human drama. So I want to talk about that. What makes this a real human drama? There's a moment in the documentary where they go for one of the few times outside of the contest and they interview a psychiatrist. He's talking about the psychological difficulties that the contestants will face and do face and so on. And he comes away saying that this contest transcends the truck. Mm. And as Benny says at one point in this contest, and I'm quoting now, you basically see the value of humanity. Mm. I think for me, that's the interesting part of the drama to see the ways in which each of these contestants, and they don't really focus on all of them because, you know, some obviously drop out in the early hours. And so the documentary doesn't really focus on them. But the ones that it ends up focusing on, they each have slightly different takes on what this contest is about, which then helps them figure out what they need to do in order to get through it. Mm -hmm. There really is no animosity among the contestants. They're not trying to trick one another or dupe one another. They really do seem to have a kind of camaraderie. And so there's that drama as well, like the interpersonal drama. Yeah, it's a drama of how there is this truck but each of them is transcending the truck in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it can't be about the truck. Even within the first half hour or so of the documentary film, it's no longer for the viewer even about the truck. I mean, I'm thinking, can you imagine being the filmmaker here and pitching this project and being like, okay, we're going to film these people <laughs> for three straight days and nights with their hands on a truck. I mean, you know, it has to be a real human drama. Otherwise, it would have been an incredibly boring film. Yeah. And watching it, I was reminded of a line that the philosopher Lambadieu says somewhere, and I think it may be a quote from Mao even. He says, those who have nothing still have their discipline. And I think part of the appeal of this for both the contestants and for watching it is it hinges on a kind of intangible quality. You watch this, you don't know who can last the longest because the kind of mental and physical discipline that it requires is something you can't quite see from the outside. It's not like you're watching a race and you can look at everyone and see who has a lean racer's body and who doesn't and be like, oh, person's probably going to win. I mean, in a strange way, it really taps into a kind of egalitarian fantasy that anyone can do this. Mm. And the sense that at the end, what people are really competing with is themselves, whether it be physically, mentally, or emotionally, you still have an ability to draw on even when you have 
absolutely nothing else. And these people are, as we said, a lot of them are down to their last bit of luck. Last $2, as the blues yeah, song says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kelly says, I have so many bills. Yeah. That's the first thing she says. And then the next thing she says is, and there are so many things I want to do. But the first thing is, I have so many bills. Mm-hmm. And I agree that there is that challenge that each of them see. And I forget his name. He was in the military, a former Marine, a youngish guy. He says at the beginning that he feels like since he got out of the military, he hasn't really been challenged. And the reason he's doing this contest is actually just to challenge himself, he says. Mm. And he doesn't mention the truck, really, in what he thinks this is about. It seems like for him, the contest is about his ability to rise to the challenge and meet it, rather than walking away with a new truck. I also think for a lot of the contestants given that they are living in conditions which they may not explicitly see as unfair, but implicitly understand as totally unfair, that there's something about the fairness of the contest, the fairness of who wins the contest that becomes really important as they go along. Kelly, one of the younger contestants, says it's not fair that Benny even gets to be in the contest. He's already won. The rest of Mm -hmm. us should have a chance. Janice, who is, I mean, wow, (laughs) like the character Janice and her husband, Don, she ends up quitting, I guess, the contest because she claims that other people are cheating, that they've taken their hands off the truck and the judge hasn't penalized them or kick them out and then eventually says, you know, I'm going to admit it. I did it too. I took my hands off the truck. The good Lord saw me and so I'm taking myself out of this competition. Now, we all know that's bullshit. She's tired and (laughs) has gone a little bit loopy at that point. And others who believe that they've prepared for this contest in the correct ways, believe that they should be the one that wins. Or Norma, who has the Holy Spirit and believes that it's fair for her to win. I think that there's an interesting sense of justice about this contest and this truck Despite the fact that, you know, from a bird's eye view, everything else about their life is unjust. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting in this justice question that there are so few rules to the contest, as you pointed Mm -hmm. out. Because of that, it does seem to exude a certain level playing field. All you got to do is keep one (laughs) hand on the truck and don't lean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Because of that, you think, okay, now we're all equal in this. We're all walking in equally. Let's go. And I'm not sure, actually, they all do walk in equally. And I'm not sure that the rules make it so that everyone has the same chance. And I think this has to do with each of their backgrounds and what they have access to and what they don't have access to, traditions and customs and so on, that some people are eating hamburgers at every break and other people are eating protein bars. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with individuals' background. You know, they all could have done this, but some of them may have had access to different education about physiology and how the body works and so on and others not. Although I do love that the winner at each break is smoking Paul Malls. <laughs> Unfiltered. Yeah, he's my hero. <laughs> yeah, I will say that one thing that they do all have, and this is something that I love, is that every single one of them has a support system. Yeah. When they get their five-minute breaks every hour, They have people who are there who are cheering them on, who are rubbing their feet, who are giving them food. Again, I don't want to be flippant about this sort of thing that people say about poor people, but even people who have nothing have other people. 
And Raul, his family is rubbing his legs at every break. And at one point he says, I don't even know what they're doing (laughs) because I'm focused on what I need to do, but it really is helping. They show some hands rubbing down his legs. And at that moment, I had this flash to all of these boxing movies where the manager is in the corner and just doing whatever they can to get the boxer cleaned up, fixed up, and just shove him yeah. back into the ring yeah. for another round. <laughs> to get beat up to more. To get beat up more, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, at that moment, when the contest goes, let's say, into the 36th hour, and you're on one of these five-minute breaks, and you're sitting down, and you know your team is helping you, and so on... The idea that you've been 36 hours and what an ordeal that has been, and then you think this could go 103 hours, which Mm -hmm. was the longest, I think, that also in and of itself is demoralizing. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. I mean, I know when I've been really, really exhausted, a few times in my life that I've been up for more than 24 hours, and there comes a point where you think, I cannot wait 15 more minutes, you know? Mm -hmm. I can't imagine being awake for three days and three nights and anything beyond that. Yeah, It's interesting to me also that none of the contestants even entertain the idea that it might just be luck who wins. They all think it's Mm. a matter of willpower, skill, dedication, faith. Whatever. Even though there's basically a lottery in order to get into the contest. (laughs) (laughs) But once you're in, you're right. They all think this is a matter of skill, endurance, Mm -hmm. grit, stick-to-itiveness, and the body and the mind just break down. No matter Mm -hmm. how strong your will is, the body is a machine and it can break down. Especially in conditions where the whole point of the conditions are to break you down. And this is, again, where I think we run up against this tension between the contestants' sense of fairness and the just gross unfairness of the contest itself. Yeah. You know, we talked a while before about how lotteries in general and these kinds of get-rich-quick schemes and so on, they really do function as a tax. On the poor. On the poor, who can least afford the tax. But what they cover over is, yeah, I could buy a lottery ticket and win $200 million, but not everyone can. And there's a way in which that very notion breaks down any solidarity that might otherwise be there. Because now, if you win, I don't win. We can't all win together. And so rather than struggle for better conditions for each of us, we now get into these lotteries and hands on a hard body contests and all manner of things like this, which really then just tax the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about the solidarity because Rick, you mentioned earlier how much solidarity is built even in the first day yeah. of this contest between the contestants. And later, Paul Prince, who's one of the contestants, talks about how this is such a metaphor for human life that often we don't just look at the people that are standing right next to us and see that they're suffering the same things that I'm suffering. And if you just reach out a hand that there could be a friendship there. You know, we do see some really beautiful relationships develop over the course of this otherwise miserable three and a half days. But the one thing that we don't see is them realize hey, we're all poor people. (laughs) We're all standing here and suffering because this truck will change our lives. We could 
we could just all agree to quit, sell the truck, split the money. We'd all be better off, (laughs) you know, be like, you never have that next move just to go back to the classroom. A lot of times when we talk about the workers revolution or talk about Marx in my classes, my students will say the same thing. You know, it's never going to be the case that somebody will say, I'm going to give up my big prize to get a smaller prize that everybody gets. That last thing you said reminds me of something I once heard in Poland. I was visiting Gdańsk, which was the center of the solidarity labor movement in Poland, which played a big role in overturning the communist regime. And this guy told me that he used to take the train that went right past the shipyards. That was the union that really was the center of the solidarity movement. And he said the workers used to be on the roofs and they would wave to people on the trains. And the people on the trains would wave back and cheer them on and shout support. And so they started stationing soldiers on that platform. The soldiers were not facing the workers. The soldiers were facing the people on the train Mm. with their guns out ready to shoot. And he said, at a certain moment, we on the train realized they're not going to kill all of us. Mm -hmm. He said, just in a moment, we all went to the window and every single person on the train was waving and shouting. At that moment, he said, I realized what solidarity means. Mm. And this notion that they're not going to kill everyone, this is a kind of solidarity that the contestants never come to. All the while, they have really deep and meaningful relationships. Paul, the contestant you were talking about, calls the people his family. He said, we became a family. Yeah. And he came back after he dropped out to support his family. There's a very touching moment between him and Norma after she drops out. And so they do have these moments of solidarity that somehow also prevent the greater solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. There is also a weird front of the truck, back of the truck dichotomy. Which I think is under-thematized in the movie because Janice, you know, who complains that they're cheating, she's talking about the back of the truck people. They're all cheaters, but we in the front of the truck, we would never think about cheating. Are you talking about Janice who has a home air conditioning system that goes to 12 below zero? And her husband is so proud of that. He got a good deal. Well, I feel like the solidarity and the competition are weirdly conjoined. I mean, Benny talks about how every time someone drops out, you're like sad for them, but Mm. you're also happy that there's one less person to deal with. And I wonder to what extent the solidarity, the cohesion also ties into the fact that people see themselves in a situation where the rules seem simple, the rules seem clear, and there's a kind of fairness to it, right? So they see themselves in a competition in which no one appears to have an advantage. I mean, as we talked about, people do have these different advantages. People are eating different foods, wearing different footwear. People have incorporated some strategy, but there doesn't seem to be, except for Benny, and I think the interesting thing about Benny is he's, as Lee was saying, the philosopher of the group, but he's kind of detached from the whole thing. I mean, he's already won, although it's very unclear. And I wish they said something about what happened to the original truck. Why is he in it again? Like, (laughs) this is a documentary I definitely wanted one of those Animal House-esque scenes at the end where we learn what happened to everyone else (laughs) after this. 
So he does have a little bit of a detached perspective from the whole thing. But by and large, we don't see people talking about the differences of strategy. Mm. There seems to be a clear sense that they're all on the same page. No one has a leg up on anyone. To the extent they notice differences, they kind of admire it. Like the one person talking about Norma and her tape. Like every time she plays that tape... She gets another wind. Yeah. If I could just really yeah. quickly, a couple of years ago, I had a student in my class. It was a philosophy film class. We were watching this film, and she told me that her dental hygienist was Kelly. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> so at least know that that happened to Kelly <laughs> afterwards. Which is good because she kind of wanders off and you worry about her at the <laughs> yeah. end. Yeah. yeah. The only person we really see afterwards is the winner. They just do a brief interview with him yeah. in the truck, and that's it. But back to this idea that. The competition and the solidarity are in a weird relationship with one another. You know, it's interesting that when any of the contestants talk about the competition in the abstract or in their interviews before they were in the competition, they talk about it as very cutthroat, right? I mean, one of the best lines from the whole film is Benny saying, if you can't run with the big togs, you better get up there on the porch with the puppies, right. <laughs> you know. But when they talk about the competition after the competition, or in Benny's case, when he talks about the competition that he was in, either of the competitions that he was in, what they talk about is the solidarity. Yeah. What they talk about is the relationships. What they talk about is the commonality between all of them. So, yeah, it is interesting that somewhere in there they still see the competition as a competition, but the experience of the competition competition is an experience of the solidarity of a real human drama. Right. Yeah. And I quoted Benny earlier when he says, you basically see the value of humanity. He goes on then to say, because you see all of these humans fighting Mm. and even if they lose, they still tried. And then this is one of my favorite sentences of the entire documentary. There aren't that many triers these days. Yeah. True fact. (laughs) So there for him, the solidarity is kind of a universal human solidarity. He sees in this competition this kind of humanity emerging in ways that he doesn't see it in other aspects of his life. Yeah. And I think one of the things interesting about the competition structurally is there's nothing to be gained from doing anything to subvert your fellow competitors. I mean, this is not like a reality TV show. You know, the famous line that always comes out of reality TV is, I'm not here Here to make make friends. friends. (laughs) Right. Right. And people often engage in all sorts of backhanded and backbiting strategies. There's nothing you can really do other than just like pass the time with other people, right? As Benny says early on, you get bored. And the only thing to really deal with that boredom is you can talk to the person next to you and get through the boredom together. The competition is a very distilled version of what some jobs are like. Mm. It's just being on your feet, getting through the day. That's the job. Right. And if the person next to you has an entertaining story to tell, all the better. (laughs) But I wonder then if this wasn't part of Kelly's downfall, because she was part of the front of the truckers. And she and Janice both mentioned how Norma and her singing and laughing was getting on their nerves. Yeah, yeah. They both at different points admit or don't admit, they insist that they don't want to be talking to anyone else because they don't want that talking on the one hand to give the person they're talking with more energy, but also take energy away from them in talking. So Kelly, she's a loner in this. 
And I wonder if in the end that wasn't a partial cause of her downfall. And by the way, she went quite long. I don't remember what hour she dropped out at. She went quite long, but I think just being a loner meant that she was in her own head and couldn't take it. Yeah. And like a loner, she didn't so much drop out as she just wandered off. She did. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I was just going to say that I think maybe the two contestants that didn't learn the solidarity lesson were... Kelly and Janice. You know, Janice kind of leaves in a fit of anger. This whole thing's unfair. I got screwed. I'm not playing in that crooked competition. And Kelly isolates herself so much that she she loses it by then, like psychologically loses it and just wanders off. So, yeah, I mean, the people who lasted the longest were the people who were connected. Yeah. Mm. And Norma, let's point out, was not just connected to the people around her, but she was also connected to the whole prayer chain, <laughs> to the whole prayer chain, <laughs> to the Holy Spirit, <laughs> to the joy of the Lord. And I will admit it, I was kind of happy she didn't win Aww. because I did not want to hear that Jesus chose her. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So a lot of people don't know this, but the Hands on the Hard Body competition stopped in 2005 after one of the contestants dropped out of the competition in the 48th hour, walked across the street to a Kmart, threw a garbage can through the window, and then went inside and killed himself with a shotgun. This story does not surprise me in the least. Mm -hmm. And it's tragic and it's sad, but it really does show that the suffering and the struggle that people are going through in this competition is not just symbolic. This is a lot more like throwing slaves in the arena and letting them fight the lions than the documentary would actually lead us to believe. Mm -hmm. I had never seen this before you suggested it, Lee. I had heard of the contest, and now that you said it, Jason, maybe I also heard it on This American Life. But going in at the beginning of the film and a huge chunk of the way through, I had in my mind that this was a contest of physical endurance. Mm -hmm. And I never saw ahead of time how much psychological and emotional endurance is really what this contest is all about. Maybe it's not what the contest is all about, but it's what makes or breaks a winner of this contest. And to see those psychological breakdowns showed the reality of the suffering that these contestants are undergoing. It's not symbolic. It's not a metaphor for the suffering of humanity. There is real individual suffering. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if I heard that Kelly went around the corner and shot someone or herself or whatever. There were some absolute psychological breakdowns that were very difficult to watch. Yeah. Yeah, and it surprises me that it seems like there's nothing done to care for people psychologically after. Like, not even someone to make sure that someone else is driving them home, it looks like. You're just kind of left on your own. As the Kelly situation, she just wanders off at the end. And I think that it also reveals to what extent we don't sometimes think of psychological harm as harm. Yeah. If there was something happening to people's bodies, if people were doing something that involved them getting cut or hurt in some way, this thing would probably have stopped. Someone would have said this is cruel. But because what is happening is happening to people's mind and they're losing their connection with reality, they're losing a sense of who they are, what's really going on. One person mentions that they thought the contest was the entirety of the world. They forgot about the world existing beyond it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a kind of dualism where we're able to look at psychological harm and think, oh, yeah, well, that's not really a thing. And it makes it possible for this contest to go on. But I also think it makes it possible for people who are dealing with similar, not at this level, but at a similar kind of psychological harm, like to work multiple shifts. And we don't really think of that as anything until it manifests itself in the kind of crisis like a suicide or another kind of action. Well, and to call back my drink order, the so-called Haymarket incident, the meatpacking industry was central to that. And one of the things that the organizers of people in the meatpacking industry were complaining about was that they used to have skilled butchers who would butcher an entire animal. But then the meatpacking industry invented the disassembly line. And now each person just had one specific motion they were doing over and over and over again for their 10-hour or in summertime 12-hour shift. And what they pointed out was exactly what you were pointing out, Jason, namely no one is focusing on the damage that the monotony of this job does to us. The psychological damage is not nothing. That was one of the main reasons they went out on strike was precisely the psychological damage of this monotonous work life. I agree with you both. I mean, I think there are a lot of lessons to take from this documentary that are inspiring and uplifting. But one lesson to take from this documentary is this is what America does to poor people. Mm -hmm. We put them through endless physical and psychological suffering way past breaking points for just a smidgen of a chance at a marginally better life. And then we act surprised when they come back and say, I'm hurt, I'm depressed, I'm angry, I'm lonely, all of these things. So, yeah, I don't want to just praise this documentary as this uplifting story about how friendships are formed amidst struggle. It is also a very, very dark mirror to working life and poor people's lives in this country. And that's where Janice, I think, becomes really interesting as this mirror, because as you pointed out, Lee, her claim upon leaving is that people were cheating. And therefore, although it seemed like there was a level playing field, they were being duped because there were cheaters in the system. And you could hear a lot of that rhetoric today among people who capitalism has left behind and 
really, in a way, we could say has cheated. Oh, 100%, yeah. Yet, they do often turn to, it's not the system, it's that there are cheaters. And then it's not that hard to see that then you start pointing to the cheaters, right? Yeah. You know, it's the internationalists, which is a dog whistle for Jewish people, right? Or because queers are getting married, this is why I didn't win. But they're not ever willing to go the next step and say, well, maybe the system itself is fucked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there, Janice, at first, I was really angry because I'm like, that is not why you left the competition. (laughs) And she was so mad about the cheaters. But then the more I reflected on it, I thought this is a response that many people have in her same economic situation. Yeah. It's also interesting talking about a picture of America that the one thing the contest providers do provide is drug testing. (laughs) <laughs> Which always seems strange to me because I, I was thinking, like, what drug do they take? <laughs> Three days. Yeah, and then thinking, like, there isn't really, I mean, I guess, you know, pain relief might help, stimulants might help, but there isn't a drug that I know of that's going to do something to mitigate the effects of just being on your feet for three days. Right. I was thinking the same thing. I mean, maybe a cokehead can stay awake for three days and nights straight, but he's not going to be able to stand <laughs> still. still right? hand on a truck. Right, anything that stimulates you is going to make it harder to stand still the drug thing just seems like a surplus kind of surveillance like oh we need to do something keep these people in line and that's the one thing when like it'd be way more beneficial to have someone there to take people home at the end of the contest rather than test them during it i mean those kind of slights i found particularly offensive not just the drug testing but also the second and third prize i mean yes Yes. third prize was like (laughs) a a gift certificate certificate to a Mexican restaurant. restaurant. And I mean, this is somebody who's like literally lost a week of work already. Yeah. Yeah. And even second prize was $250. Cash though. Cash. cash. (laughs) I mean, yeah, they walk right by Ski-Doo's in the showroom. Give them a Ski-Doo for, you know. All right, guys. Well, the bartender is making last call. We do not have to stay here for three days and nights. <laughs> Although, I think we might be finished. <laughs> but we have managed to not spoil it all the way through. We have not told you who won the contest. But I'd be interested to hear back from all of you listeners. You can respond to us on Twitter or on Facebook. Let us know who you were pulling for, and we'll see who was actually pulling for the winner. As I mentioned, there's a lot of lessons that you can learn from this film. I think one of them is this is about how America treats poor people. But I wanted to give you guys both a chance to tell me what do you think a lesson or the lesson of hands on a hard body is. Rick, let's go to you first. What I think is one of the lessons sums up many of the things we've been talking about. Namely, it's a lesson about the way in which in the United States, capitalism is conjoined with a certain kind of rugged individualism and the ways in which these don't often go together so well. Mm. This film really shows the myth of the individual, both how it functions and how it is also a myth. We all kind of know it, even though we don't acknowledge it openly. I think that's a big lesson I took away from the film. What about you, Jason? Well, before I say my lesson, I do want to point out that I'm thinking now we should put on our Patreon page for supporters a level at which you could support us. We will do a three-day podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to come cheap. (laughs) Way more than 250 bucks. 
but we'll put in a level where you can support for the three-day marathon podcast. Okay, but what will the rules of that be? You can't leave the mic. We have to have one cheek on the chair at all times. I think the lesson that I took from this is that even when you take a lot from people and give them nothing to work with but their own belief and their own endurance, they will work with that. Mm. People, I think, strive to see a possibility to change their lives and improve their lives. And even when that possibility just becomes like, can you subject your body Mm. and your mind to the pure test of endurance? People will say, well, if that's all I have, I'm going to leverage that. The thing that struck me about this is how much this mirrors what a lot of jobs are, just pure acts of mental and physical endurance. And that, in a strange way, makes this appealing to the people who compete because they look at this and they say, it's not too different from what I'm already doing. Only now I'm going to get a real prize for it and not just enough money to make rent. Yeah. Speaking of making rent, <laughs> listeners, you can support this podcast on our Patreon page. And for the low, low price of three masseurs for three days, we might do a three-day-long podcast. No, but seriously, go check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. We appreciate anything you can kick our way. And with that, we are out of here. Uh, anybody got a truck? <laughs> I'll be back in 76 hours with a new truck. Shotgun. <laughs> <laughs>